You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with elected officials, policy experts, thought leaders about the big issues dominating the political debate here and overseas. And I'm joined today by my good friend, Matt Goodwin, um, who is one of the most astute observers of uh, of British and European politics that I know. He's also a great student of public opinion in Europe and somebody who helped me understand the, the Brexit, uh, 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 the long-running Brexit saga in Britain and other things besides. So Matt, welcome uh, to the podcast. It's really great to, to hear and see you. Thanks for having me. And it's great to uh, be talking again, Will. Thanks, Matt. Uh, for, for those who don't know Matt, he is a professor of political science and the author of several books, Revolt on the Right, Brexit, Why Britain Voted to Leave the European Union, and national, and in another book, National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy, which I strongly recommend to those trying to understand the wave of populist nationalism that's rolled over the transatlantic world in the last, uh, really, uh, since 2010. Uh, and that's what, what we really want to talk about. We want to survey the post-Brexit landscape in Britain, uh, we want to look at post-Trump landscape here in the United States a little bit and ask the question, uh, which I'm, I'm framing, uh, Matt, in a very purposefully hopeful way, is uh, transatlantic populism on the decline? And I uh, look for you to set us straight on uh, the answer there. But first, first things first, is, has Britain overcome the, gotten over the trauma of the invasion of Old Trafford uh, last weekend? <laughs> this is really disturbing sights uh, over here. Well, um, big, big questions. Um, let, let me start with the question on populism. Look, I think it's fair to say that um, certain populist leaders have clearly suffered election defeats, but at the same time, the, the underlying support for those movements, I would argue, is, is probably as strong as ever. You know, there's a lot of interest in the US election, obviously here in Europe, and, and still, I think, uh, a, a significant degree of shock at the degree of support that Donald Trump was able to mobilize, but also the way in which that support had changed, that it had become a little bit more diverse. You know, he, he did noticeably well among some minority uh, communities, but also here in Europe, of course, we've observed that alongside the fact that we have polling in France, putting Marine Le Pen on 45, 48% of the vote ahead of crunch uh, presidential elections uh, next year. Uh, we've seen a breakthrough this year in Portugal by Chega, um, which is a, a national populist party. Uh, we've seen uh, Lega in Italy, Sweden Democrats um, doing, doing, you know, as well as they've done previously. But more fundamentally, I think we've also seen the realignment of several centre-right parties. And I think this is one of the more significant aspects of politics today. If you take the British Conservative Party, you know, what American listeners and onlookers have to understand is the Britain, the, 
the British Conservative Party is fundamentally different from the, the Conservative Party that elected David Cameron only five years ago. It's become much more working class. It's become, um, in general terms, as an electorate, less well-educated, more preoccupied with Brexit, more preoccupied with immigration reform. And so the dynamics of the party have changed in important ways. And of course, looking at Republicans in the US, I'm sure, you know, I don't need to tell you that I think conservatism more generally is, is, is going through a realignment. Uh, and if you look, I think, at the, the deeper trends underpinning some of that, and I'm sure we'll come onto this in a second, what I think is going on um, is, is, is that we are increasingly moving away from that classic left-right economic divide that structured politics throughout much of the 20th century. And we are now seeing that be joined, not disappeared, but it's been joined by these new cultural conflicts over identity, uh, uh, globalization, migration, uh, and so on. And that is playing out in many uh, democracies in Europe at the moment. Okay. So, you're, so you're, 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 you're not seeing much evidence of decline. You're seeing just, uh, uh, you know, some rising of, of these populist nationalist forces in some countries, um, you know, uh, which you mentioned. Uh, and the possibility of breakthroughs in major countries like um, like France. Um, well, look, why don't we? Uh, I, my, my question about Old Trafford was actually semi-serious in the sense that some uh, observers here in the United States are are uh, putting the protest against the Super League uh, into the populist category. Maybe we'll come back to that if we have time in this conversation. But first, let's drill down on the British election. You've got a huge uh, set of local elections coming up this week on Thursday. Uh, Super Thursday, it's called. You know, what, what, what are the stakes here and how are the major you know, political actors uh, you know, uh, handicapping these elections? Well, let's just rewind to the 2019 general election. So what's happened to the Labour Party? It's it suffered its worst defeat since 1935, lowest number of seats uh, for nearly a century. And crucially, it lost many seats in its northern working class um, red wall areas that, that have been Labour in many cases throughout much of the 20th century. Some had never voted Conservative before. And of course, Boris Johnson tapped into those areas partly through the Brexit issue, but more generally, he tapped into what I would call conflicted workers. They lean left on the economy, but on many areas they lean, uh, on many cultural issues, they lean right. What Americans might call in an earlier phase, Reagan Democrats. Um, and you've seen that, that, that realignment take place in your system. What's happening now is that uh, you know, when Labour when Labour suffered that loss, Jeremy Corbyn, the radical left uh, leader, uh, made way for Sir Keir Starmer, who was trying to reposition the party back into the, the a more centrist position, um, while taking his, his more radically left-wing party membership with him on that journey. So it's not easy, given that the Labour membership has changed in fundamental ways from the Tony Blair era. Uh, and I'll come back to that in a second. So as we go into the elections uh, this week, this is essentially the first real test of Keir Starmer's leadership, the first real test of the public mood in many of those northern, traditionally Labour red wall uh, areas where we've got a whole host of local 
council elections from Yorkshire to, to, uh, to parts of the Northwest and the Northeast. And, and in the middle of this is, is what everybody's watching, which is this parliamentary by-election in the seat of Hartlepool, Peter Mandelson's old seat, Labour since 1964. And we've had some polling over the last two weeks that suggests that that is going to fall to the Conservatives. If that happens, Keir Starmer will come under immense pressure. Uh, his leadership ratings in the opinion polls recently have not been as strong as some uh, would suggest they should be, given how badly the COVID crisis was managed by Boris Johnson. Um, and there is a growing opposition to Starmer from many of the Corbyn supporting members and activists who are essentially arguing that, that, that Labour cannot win from the centre, that it needs to stay in the Corbyn position, which of course is nonsensical given that Labour were reduced to, to the lowest number of seats since 1935 by that position. So Starmer is really up against it. And of course, throw, flowing through these elections is this deeper point, Will, about the realignment of British politics. And I keep going on about this because, you know, and I, I, I've actually talked to Keir Starmer's people about this and many of the Labour MPs about this, is this is a crucial point Labour have to understand about British politics today. It's not that the red wall is gone, it's that the red wall has really only partially gone. There are now, because of that election in 2019, there are about 25 to 30 Labour seats that have incredibly small majorities in lots of traditional working class areas. So the next election, um, <laughs> if Labour doesn't get this right, um, it risks losing more support in those areas while stacking up votes where I am in London, in the university town. Sadiq Khan will be re-elected mayor of London um, for, the, for his second term. Um, Labour will, you know, will celebrate that, but, but in a way it underlines the problem for the party. It's stacking up votes in areas that it already holds, and it's not winning votes in areas where it really needs to win those votes in, in England, in, in industrial working class England. And this is first past the post, right? So you really need to, to, to get a reach into all of those areas. Of course, that sounds very familiar to us in the United States. And, uh, the, Democrat, the Democratic vote is packed into uh, cosmopolitan places, uh, city centers and the inner suburbs. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, Biden won last time by making inroads into places that uh, Democrats hadn't been winning lately, uh, but the Republicans also did very well uh, and made uh, gains, people uh, should not forget, in, the, uh, in 2020, even as Donald Trump was losing the White House. Uh, uh, and so uh, this, uh, we've got our own sort of red wall problems, but, uh, but let, let me go to Boris Johnson for a second. Um, to what extent, if this is a test of Keir Stormer and his redef redefining of, or defining of the next, you know, labor um, agenda and government. Uh, it, to what extent is this Super Thursday election uh, uh, a test of Boris Johnson's handling of the COVID endgame, excuse me, the Brexit endgame and of COVID? It's that too. Uh, Boris Johnson is under some pressure from his internal MPs, his, his fellow MPs over a couple of things. There is a growing smell of cronyism and sleaze around the Conservative Party. And those of us with memories of the 1990s, prior to the election of Tony Blair, New Labour, will remember 
the, the way in which that can damage the conservative brand, uh, the scandal over the uh, renovation of number 10 Downing Street uh, has irritated some senior conservatives, uh, the amateurism, uh, the um, questionable morality within the um, within the number 10 um, uh, regime is irritating some conservatives and the handling of the lockdown. Many conservatives feel that the lockdown has been too excessive. The libertarian wing of the party has been very critical. Now, you have to weigh all of that alongside the fact that the conservatives remarkably are still above 40% in the polls. So you throw in some bad elections, you throw in a decline in the polls, it's not difficult to see how Boris Johnson begins to come unstuck internally. The problem at the moment for his opponents is that is not currently happening. Johnson has got a second win from the vaccines. People generally were very impressed with the delivery and the distribution of the vaccines. And he does have this leveling up agenda, this policy agenda, which is about um, investing in working class areas through infrastructure, transport, moving government departments to the north of England, a new infrastructure bank, this kind of, all this kind of stuff. So he, he's, he's, he's sort of standing more left on the economy than um, his predecessors, but, but maintaining a firmly right position on on culture. And, and that has allowed him in particular, if you look at the polling and survey data, to unlock the so-called C2s, the skilled working class, the mechanics, the plumbers, the factory workers. Um, and those, those are the groups that are currently giving Johnson a 15, 16 point lead in, in some of the polls. Those are the groups that Keir Starmer has to now have a really big conversation uh, with about these, about these issues. If Johnson wins Hartlepool just as an aside, and he is able to say, look, you know, the realignment is continuing, the, the red wall is, exp is uh, or the, the new blue wall is expanding, uh, that will essentially allow him to fend off uh, his critics for the short term. Um, but but there, are, there are seeds within his premiership that could very quickly grow into serious problems. Uh, that's fascinating. And just uh, as an aside for our for U.S. listeners, uh, uh, we want to keep the color schemes uh, clear here. Uh, red and blue were reversed in England, so that uh, red means labor and blue means the Tories, whereas here it's uh, it's the opposite. So just keep that in mind as, as that leads us through the intricacies of these uh, of these battles, which though have tremendous structural similarity to the kind of dilemmas that Democrats and, and progressives face in the United States. So Johnson has, in a way, his own version of a Trumpy agenda in that he has a, a, an economic offer toward the working class in addition to a cultural offer, uh, which I assume uh, it's, I assume that uh, immigration is still a live issue, but you, I'd love to hear you on that. But what is labor's theory for how to deal with its cultural uh, problems in the north, in the Midlands, in the north, in uh, former red wall places that uh, may not be so sturdy anymore. I think that's a million dollar question. Uh, that is the question Labour and also centre left social democratic parties in Europe have to answer. I, I think what we are seeing clearly is a is a pattern that, in a way, Joe Biden has broken. Centre-left social democrats across Europe have been in decline since the mid-2000s. 
and they are in many European nations now being eclipsed by their green or more radical left counterparts. Look at Germany as a, as a good example of this. The German Greens are enjoying some of their strongest polling results for a very long time. Um, and or similar things have happened in, in Spain with Podemos, although Podemos had a bad set of elections this week, and uh, Syriza in Greece. Um, what Labour are trying to do, from my understanding, is lower the salience of Brexit. So they want to draw a line between pre-2019 British politics and post-2019 British politics. They're basically trying to take Brexit off the table. So they can say, well, let's get back to talking about jobs, wages, inequality, conservative cronyism, that sort of stuff. The problem with that strategy being challenging to the Labour Party, which you know I like to do, um, the problem is this, Will, is Brexit was never just about Brexit. Brexit was really... Um, giving expression to a more cultural conservatism that we know has long been concentrated among parts of the working class. So it was also about immigration. It was about national pride. It was about wanting to see the best in British history, not the worst. It was about uh, all of these issues uh, that, that, that extended beyond EU membership. Um, taking, back, taking back control taking back control, getting Brexit done, all of that stuff. And, I, and I, I also think very, and can show this empirically, it was also wrapped up with people's growing concern over the loss of status for workers, that they feel, I think rightly, uh, uh, that over the last 50 years, working class people have gradually lost social status and esteem relative to, to university graduates and middle-class professionals. And we've got to, got to think about ways of, of dealing with that. So Labour currently are trying to basically lower the salience of, of Brexit, but are not yet really offering this alternative vision of what you might call a sort of progressive patriotism model. Um, you know, what is their equivalent to, you know, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime? You know, the more I look back at the late 90s, the more I realise that actually what New Labour did so well at that time was lock down parts of the cultural conservatism through some of those issues around crime and, you know, cool Britannia and, and taking on a different, a different interpretation of, of uh, national identity and Britishness. And I think Starmer has to do the same. He has to find a way of talking about national identity and culture that can take the middle class with him, but, but can help him rebuild parts of, of that blue wall. And it, it is not easy given that the Labour membership has fundamentally changed. It's become much more um, professional, managerial, much more university educated, much more London centric. Lots of activists in London often don't have much experience with these communities that Labour has lost um, and are also much more likely than members in the past to say that they'll probably never experience poverty, that they are fairly economically secure. And so that is really magnifying this divide that's playing out within the, within the Labour tent. And just lastly on immigration, because I think you've hit a nail on the head. Here's, a, here's one of the seeds within Boris Johnson's tent or camp or garden that could blossom into a real, real big problem for him. Many of the workers who are voting for the Conservatives wanted a reformed migration system and they, they got one. We've moved from free movement of EU nationals to a more of a US system, a sort of skilled points-based kind of system, perhaps closer to Canada than America. Um, 
But Boris Johnson is, ba- and this is something that American listeners might struggle with, but Boris Johnson is actually very relaxed with about migration. He is f- entirely comfortable with allowing three million plus uh, Hong Kongers uh, over the longer term to come into the UK, uh, fleeing um, uh, China. He's very relaxed about global free trade. He's very relaxed about migration from outside of Europe. And once COVID goes, and once we get back to normal, and once immigration levels start to increase quite sharply, which they will do from outside of Europe, that is going to be a really interesting moment in his premiership, because I think lots of his new voters will be asking, well, what happened to the control that they thought they were getting through uh, defecting to the Conservatives. And that is also where Labour will, will need to have something to say um, in a way that can resonate with those communities. That's fascinating, Matt. And again, just uh, striking parallels with the US political reality. But let me get back to Starmer for a second and his challenge, which you nicely uh, laid out there. Uh, he gave a speech recently, which I read, that. Uh, in which his formula was uh, devolution and social justice. Social justice, I understand that's the traditional labor message uh, to the country. Um, the devolution's trickier proposition. I assume he's, I assume he's talking to Scottish voters uh, <laughs> uh, as much as anybody else when he's talking about devolution. But yeah, you know, whereas. Uh, if they want to take uh, if they want to take uh, Brexit off the table, doesn't Labour have to reckon with you know this kind of separatist movement or separatist moment? Uh, and you know, so here's the question: To what extent has Brexit been a catalyst for separatism? Uh, and to what extent, or, or why does Keir Stormer think that a devolution message might? Uh, might be a way around the Tories' presumed capture of national identity or nationalism by being for Brexit? Well, the Labour Party has not lost one red wall. It's lost two. It's lost the the wall in Northern England, which is this working-class English wall, and it's lost the red wall in Scotland, which it lost in 2015. So somewhere between now and the next election, Labour has to make a serious recovery in one or both of those. Um, it could pin its hopes on saying, well, a majority at the next election is just too difficult to get. And therefore, we're going to start to zoom in on the idea of a progressive alliance between the SNP and the Labour Party against the Conservatives. But of course, that's why the elections this week are so important, because if you see the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon win a majority, then that's going to bolster their case for a second independence referendum in Scotland, which they're now saying that they're going to hold irrespective of whether or not they get permission or, you know, they, 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 they get constitutional approval to do that. Um, and then things for the Labour Party begin to get incredibly difficult because if Scotland does have a second referendum on independence and does vote for independence, it's very difficult to see where the Labour Party goes in the future because it, it, it has not won the, the popular vote in England since 2001. Um, there aren't enough seats, essentially, for the Labour Party uh, unless, it, unless it reconfigures itself somehow uh, uh, t- to take advantage of that. So the devolution 
discussion and the, 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 the sort of the compromise that I think Keir Starmer is, is trying to, 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 to carve out reflects that. And of course, in, in recent history, we've seen Labour leaders do something similar. Tony Blair, of course, tried to use devolution to fend off Scottish nationalism. It didn't work. I mean, it backfired, if anything. It, it gave Scottish nationalism the credibility that it, that it needed. Uh, and, and then we've, we've seen the SNP uh, move forward since. So, so Starmer is in an incredibly difficult position because the other thing to bear in mind here, Will, is Scotland itself has fundamentally changed over the last three or four decades. It's become, I mean, it was always more progressive in many ways than, than, than England, but it's become much more um, willing to define itself through a pro-European Union, socially liberal, anti-England lens since Brexit. So Starmer is now facing the sort of the two ends of the new cultural axis. You know, he's got the more pro-Brexit blue collar seats that he needs to win back in Northern England. And he's got the very strongly anti-Brexit um, pro-EU Scottish nationalist type seats that he's got to win back. So it's not a, a task that I would really wish on my worst enemy. It's an, it's, it's an incredibly more complex dilemma uh, than, than Tony Blair ever faced, um, or indeed any other previous Labour leader ever faced. And it, it goes to show also the extent to which British politics is fragmenting. We have a party system here, Will, that is rapidly fragmenting in Scotland and right. Wales and, and elsewhere. And the days when the Labour and the Conservative Party, you know, dominated the union are, are over and they're not coming back. Uh, it's going to be very difficult for, for Starmer to find a way through. Right. Uh, just uh, again, for the benefit of U.S. listeners, uh, Nicola Sturgeon runs the Scottish National Party, which has, what, 45 of the 49 Scottish seats? or about that. Yeah. A big, 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 uh, big majority and has promised another uh, independence referendum after the upcoming Scottish elections. But my, I guess my, my feeling is that, you know, if British politics, UK politics has, uh, is fragmented, to what extent does a devolution discussion and agenda pushed by Labour, you know, reinforce the, that tendency? Uh, because they're, you know, the, the, in Northern Ireland, they're, they're asking new questions about the union. And if, uh, Scott, if Scotland goes, certainly uh, you, that, would, that would likely pick, that discussion would likely pick up uh, some momentum in Northern Ireland. There's even, you know, there's a Welsh Nationalist Party too, but uh, the whole thing could unravel. So, uh, you know, I'm wondering how, you know, does devolution offer some palpable benefit to the people in Scotland, the people in uh, Wales and, and Nor Northern Ireland, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, that, 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 that would make uh, independence a less attractive option. I watched Tony Blair uh, back in the day offer that devolution uh, deal to Scotland and thought it was a smart uh, move. But as you pointed out, uh, it seems to have fed Scottish nationalism. So I'm just curious about uh, what the calculation is, you know, by, by Stormer in, in giving such heavy emphasis to that, that message. Well, my view is it, it's really the, the last card in the pack. I mean, there isn't really much else that, that, that he can do. Um, if, you know, if we, if we hope, and I say this as somebody that 
supports the union and would like to see the UK stay together. I, 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 I really don't have much time for some of my colleagues who are actively wishing for the, the breakup of the UK. I, I do think we're stronger together. Um, but I, I would say that um, if the SNP do not manage to get a majority, then, then both the Labour and the Conservative parties, I think, really do need to drive home the message that, that the referendum and the independence campaign is, is really off the table for a generation that, you know, we, we've had this debate in 2014, really not a very long time ago. We cannot keep pushing for uh, referendums on this issue. And we need to basically revitalize both our sense of British identity, make it much more appealing and inclusive. Um, and secondly, we need to come up with a much more compelling case for the union and for holding these countries together. Now, in my more optimistic moments during the COVID crisis, I hoped that the vaccine would be one of, could be one of those stories, that here you have a great example of, uh, of, of British enterprise based on our leading universities, including our much cherished National Health Service, which as you know, is the closest thing that we have now to a national religion. Uh, and I had hoped that that might bolster general feelings of national pride and unity and I would have liked to have seen our mainstream politicians make a bit more out of that and how it relates to the union. Um, but I feel like that moment has passed. So Starmer really doesn't have that many options. What he's going to be hoping to see this week is a, a bit of a labor recovery north of the border. He's going to also, by the way, be hoping to be fending off some problems in Wales where over the last 18 months, labor have been looking a little bit, um, a little bit vulnerable. Uh, and he'll be looking for some any signs of progress in, in in Northern England. And you know, if I'm wrong on this, and 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 you see you see Labour win Hartlepool, you see Labour make gains in in Yorkshire and the North, you see them get some recovery in in Scotland and 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 hold and hold up in Wales. Then he's got a lot to fight for. I mean, it's it's still early days in his Premiership, and he'll be able to come out and say, you know, Labour's under new management. This is the direction we're going. The polls at the moment just simply do not suggest that's going to happen. Um, and I'm still somewhat amazed by the fact that after the events of the last 18 months, the Conservatives are still above 40%. But, you know, this is a new realigned politics that we live in. Um, not to dwell too much more on the Scottish dilemma but for Labour, but it is fascinating that unlike other nationalist movements in Europe uh, and and nationalism in general in, in the United States and UK, uh, the Scottish National Party is a left of center party, well left of center. And so that it competes with labor uh, on the social justice front. And, uh, and in fact, I would say it's even farther to the left uh, labor, more, more democratic socialists than labor is. And that labor can afford to be if it's going to try to win broad majorities across middle England. So that, that further uh, makes Labour's job. Uh, Although the one thing I would add to that is that uh, the SNP uh, have not been, in my opinion, running Scotland uh, anywhere near as well as they should have been. And there is a competency issue that is underpinning uh, the SNP. There are serious questions about you know, the, the quality of healthcare, education, uh, and the economy in Scotland. And I would go out on the limb, I'm co you know, confident of this. I mean, Scotland on its own, economically would be disastrous 
it would it would it, I, I see no viable way to a, a a functioning successful scottish economy um and, and i don't i've yet to meet a serious economist who does not to mention the possibility of a hard border between scotland and england uh a, a no currency currently and also a european union that would think twice about allowing scotland in given the implications for other regionalist and subnational concerns within the European Union, most noticeably in Spain. So I think that however idealistic the idea of an anti-Brexit Scotland turning back to the European Union is, not only is it riddled with very serious practical problems that actually go further than some of the problems with regards to Brexit, but secondly, it would really consign the Scottish people, including, by the way, large numbers of my family, to an economy that would be completely different to what Scotland has now. Uh, it's not something I personally would want to see. Right. But I think Labour could be talking a bit, I think Labour could be talking a bit more about that uh, aspect and, and, and the reality right. of that. How, how Scotland would finance this, uh, this more lavish uh, welfare state that the, the Scottish National Party is uh, promising. Uh, fascinating. Well, look, let, let's uh, turn to the United States and UK uh, for a second. Uh, there is a striking parallelism in our politics sometimes. I don't want to overstate it, but back in the 90s when both the Democrats and Labour were in political exile for a long period following Reagan and, and Thatcher, uh, first Clinton won in the United States in 92. That had a pretty powerful demonstration effect on uh, British Labour. I know because that's how we got to know all the new labor folks who came over and there was a great cross-fertilization of ideas and tactics and strategy and, uh, and consultants and thinkers. And, uh, and so that when and, and Tony Blair and Gord Brown frequently came over and learned from the Clinton experience and uh, in, in sort of revitalizing a party with a, on, a, on a long losing streak. Uh, and then they, the New Labour won uh, famously in 97 and went on to really have the longest uh, run in office of any Labour government. Uh, not so popular these days, however. Now, fast forward to 2016, you had the, 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 uh, the shocking Brexit vote, at least shocking to us, uh, uh, in Britain, uh, followed later that year by the shocking uh, Trump victory in the United States for president. Uh, which seemed to you know, tell us that this, this wave of populist nationalism, which we saw coursing over Europe, had somehow managed to break first in the United States, which uh, we weren't expecting, or at least I wasn't expecting. Um, and so uh, there has been this kind of relationship. Now, so now Joe Biden has defeated Donald Trump uh, and, uh, and is, is, has a pretty, uh, has a very audacious uh, you know, agenda for national reconstruction, revitalization, um, recovery. And, um, you know, are, are, does labor in Britain look uh, to what, to the Biden experience? So they, are they gleaning any lessons from that? Do they see anything, any useful uh, lessons from Biden's victory uh, last year over Trump? as they try to find their way back to, you know, uh, building a governing majority, an electoral and governing majority? Well, I've personally been struck by the lack of conversation or the absence of conversation about the implications of Biden for, for the Labour Party. Uh, there, 
it doesn't seem to be the same degree of cooperation that there was in the 1990s. I may be wrong on that. I'm not, you know, a paid advisor within the Starmer camp, but looking from the from 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 where I am, it doesn't it doesn't seem to have the same degree of ideological, pragmatic, strategic cooperation that there was. Um, I think there is an awareness that Biden and Starmer are facing very similar internal challenges um, give, with regard to, you know, you refer to Democrat, democratic socialists and we might say Corbynistas, but there is a sense that it's difficult to carry middle Britain with you and please that side of the party base. And I think Starmer is certainly alive to that. But I think more generally, you know, I think the interest in the Biden project is you know, if we go back to the third way, you know, and 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 which sort of sort of came to an end with the with the financial crisis, and and then we sort of entered into kind of that sort of decade of, of populism that will be remembered, but for Trump and Brexit and and similar movements, it, it it strikes me that I think people within the Labour Party are still looking for the modern day equivalent of the third way. What is the intellectual project behind Starmerism? Um, when you look at Sama from the US, do you even see an ism? Do you see, um, you know, a, a, a blueprint? And I think, you know, they're looking at Biden to see, well, you know, what is this, you know, infrastructure plan? What is this tax plan? What is the, the family, uh, the family investment? What's he doing on the southern border? What's he doing with regards to, to, to the more radical wing of his party? And I think they're looking for what that that new vision of labor politics is is going to be because I currently there 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 is not a, there is not a compelling vision um, coming out of out of the Starmer camp. He gave one big speech on the economy, which which I thought was 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 fine, but but I think it was very it was very standard center left uh, um, economic positioning. It wasn't there was there was nothing new there for the post Brexit moment you know and if you think as i do that actually we are in a we have crossed the watershed into a new era of british politics where the the, the political rules have changed in, in important ways then the parties need to rise to that and they need to say well this is how we're going to this is how we're going to shape brexit britain you know johnson is talking about global britain he hasn't defined it nobody knows what it means but that's his his thing he's trying to put meat around it i i, I think with starmer we need to see you know what what do you want to do with this moment that we're in? You might not like Brexit. You might think it's a historic mistake. But what what do you want to do with it? How do you want to change the country now that we are out of the European Union and we're in this new strange place? And I think that's what voters want to hear. Mm. Uh, and I'd be interested in your view. I mean, do you see do you see the cooperation and the and the the strategic overlap? Is there much interest in your world in Kiyosama, I mean, I'd be curious to hear your perspective. Well, well, again, we don't, we don't see it on our side either, really, Matt. Uh, uh, Joe Biden, and we ought to keep in mind here that uh, uh, although Biden won convincingly uh, over Trump, seven million votes, swung a couple of red states blue and recaptured some of our blue wall states, uh, but uh, the Republicans also did very well in the last election down ballot. Uh, in fact, they did, every, they did well everywhere, including in the swing states that flipped the presidential election to Biden. So that is a reminder that Biden's majority uh, 
is on a knife's edge. We, we're 50-50 in the Senate, seven, it'll be seven, a seven point margin for House Democrats in the House. And in our system with all of its veto points and checks and balances, uh, it's really hard to govern on that basis. It's always hard to, uh, to try to govern on a one party parliamentary style uh, model anyway. Our system's not really geared to that. So uh, Biden had a lot of uh, strong tailwind after the election for his first big uh, proposal for recovery and relief from COVID and the country was for it. Now he's proposed two big multi-trillion dollar packages for uh, sort of economic reconstruction and infrastructure and, and families and social policy and you know, uh, welfare benefits uh, for, for, for the country. Uh, and they're just going to have a hard time. There is, you know, uh, because he's going to have a hard time holding all of his Democrats together. Modern Democrats from competitive and swing states and districts are under pressure here. Um, and the Republican Party is in a uh, state of mind that is <laughs> not constructive and not focused on uh, a return to regular, uh, you know, democracy and governance. Uh, they're still under the baleful spell of Trumpism. And so, it's a very tough and fraught moment for us. And I don't think Biden has the luxury of thinking as Clinton did uh, with a strong Democratic majority about a new model. And Clinton came into, you know, into office with a new Democratic philosophy and agenda. A lot of thought had gone into having been part of all that, several years of debate and contestation and new idea generation that, that, you know, that didn't happen as much on, on the Democratic side, except for the left wing's ideas, which were unpalatable for the majorities of the country. And Biden rightly said, no, we can't really go there. Um, and so he doesn't have, you know, a governing agenda or theory to, to, to export in the way that Trent, Clinton did. And he's totally consumed with uh, trying to find a way to get, get over a really ambitious Agenda. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, which is to say that this isn't the right moment for those kind of discussions. I think between Biden administration and and labor, but that if uh, if we can uh, certainly if we can uh, get uh, through the next uh, year with a surging economy, which I expect to see uh, also being a great help to Biden. Uh, get parts of his agenda through Congress and then have a decent midterm, then I think there'd be a, a right moment for the, just that kind of conversation as, uh, by which time labor would really be thinking about its agenda you know, for, for the next, next election. But certainly the, you know, the, the structural problems and really the, uh, the, base, you know, the class basis of our two parties are so strikingly similar. Uh, we lost the working class well before labor did. <laughs> I'm not saying labor's totally lost the working class, but I mean, you know, uh, the Reagan Democrats, as you pointed out, that's an 80s phenomenon. In the 70s and 80s, the great blue collar coalition that Roosevelt and Truman had built uh, uh, began to migrate to the Republican Party and they've been there pretty solidly. Uh, and we're not going to get them back anytime soon, although we need to reduce Republican margins. Um, so even though the challenges are similar that Biden faces and Keir Starmer faces, uh, uh, they aren't exact. Uh, the parallels are never fully exact. And uh, we've just, you know, he, he's got his hands full with trying to navigate with uh, his own, uh, you know, the own fault lines between pragmatic and dogmatic Democrats. And frankly, an opposition party that's lost its mind. <laughs> 
So yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I, I, that I, makes I, it difficult uh, for, for him. Yeah, and I was just going to say, I see remarkable similarities between Biden and uh, Biden's dilemma and, and, and Keir Starmer's dilemma within that, within that respect. And success across the transatlantic world. Uh, center-left parties have been uh, not only losing elections, but really splintering, losing their dominant positions uh, in the, as this realignment that you discussed uh, proceeded. Uh, you know, France is a, a particularly dramatic example. Say a word about that because there's an election coming up uh, uh, not, not too far away. And as far as I can see, the old Socialist Party is hardly a factor. And the left itself is splintered and hardly a factor. But, you know, maybe use France as a, as a point of departure for uh, discussing sort of, this, you know, the, the uh, pervasive challenges facing the center-left parties in Europe. Well, I think you're right in saying that um, it's not a it's not a new challenge. I remember uh, reading Capitalism and Social Democracy in 1986, which pointed to this very dilemma. In fact, I think in America, Seymour Lipset might have even talked about it in the 50s and the 60s. That you know, as the middle class professionals expanded, it was always going to be a really difficult task to hold these very different groups together. And it may be that. Fundamentally, we have just reached a new chapter in the history of mass politics. That the realignment that is coming through is is one that potentially could be could be permanent as the Labour Party and and its sister parties in in Europe become more more dependent upon middle class professionals, millennials, Zoomers. Um, you know, and uh, in a world where the alignment of the of the post war years is no more. You know that the the loyalties rooted in class, rooted in the left-right divide are, are basically nowhere near as strong as they were, which is something I'm writing about at the moment. I mean, th this is this is one stat to keep in mind, one fact that at the last election, the Conservatives emerged as the most popular party among low-income voters, and the Labour Party emerged as the most popular party among high-income voters. So the traditional party of the rich has kind of become the party of the poor, and the traditional party of the poor has kind of now become the party of the rich. And You've you've got you've entered the all you've you've we're now seeing all of the unwritten laws in British politics being overturned. If I throw class into my model of voting behaviour, it doesn't have any effect anymore. Now, if I throw education and age, they'll tell me everything I need to know because what we're seeing are the value divides. It's now the sort of social liberals versus the the sort of traditionalists, right? And 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 that is really driving our politics, driving the new new British politics in a big way, as it is in other countries. So. You know, you're seeing in France, Marine Le Pen kind of tapping into that right wing axis. Uh, and you're seeing on the other side, you know, Macron doing especially well in the cities among the graduates and so forth. And, you know, one of the one of the narratives that has run through much of the progressive commentary in the UK is, well, why don't why don't we just wait and sit it out and wait for these groups to become you know, bigger groups, and then, you know, election after election will go for the Labour Party. Well, the problem with that is a lot of the change that we're talking about, the generational change is so slow that, you know, you could lose three, four, five elections before even getting to that tipping point. And secondly, we know that, that people can be affected very strongly by what's happening in the world as they're coming of age. There's a bit of evidence in Britain, for example, that shows that the Zoomers, um, who are 18 to 24 are a little bit more conservative than the millennials who are sort of 25, you know, and above. 
Uh, and that might be because they're coming of age amid Brexit, amid Trump, amid all of these things that we've been talking about in this podcast, or it might just be some random effect that is going to work its way through the system. But I think it, 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 I've been trying to tell colleagues in, in, in the UK, and particularly friends of mine who are working very closely with, with people at the top of the Labour Party, do not buy into narratives that distract you from basically doing work that distract you from actually getting out and making arguments because the, the kind of politics as a conveyor belt narrative, I just think is, uh, is very unhelpful. Uh, you know, I don't know if you have the same in the US. I remember reading Stan Greenberg's book on, um, you know, uh, the new, the new ascendant majority. Um, and in fact, he, he, him coming to London to talk about that book, and this was shortly before Donald Trump, you know, was elected. And I, I, there were folks saying, you know, you can't count on these groups just, just tipping into your column because, you know, as they get bigger, you're going to have to go out and make the argument. And that's ultimately what Keir Starmer needs to do. Right. Uh, uh, demo demographic determinism was a strong uh, tide in the United States in the early part of this century. And uh, many of my friends are writing books uh, saying that uh, they were going to make it easy for Democratic majorities to assemble uh, but uh, we saw in this last election, uh, just to sort of prove your point, uh, you know, uh, the Republicans made significant gains and Trump made gains among Hispanic voters in the swing states, particularly, um, and among working class Hispanic voters, um, and even did a little bit marginally better with some uh, African American men. So. Uh, again, working class. So the, the, the minority working class uh, moved a little in the Republican uh, direction. So it, it, I couldn't agree with you more, Matt, that uh, we have to go out and fight the battle of persuasion every year. The idea that uh, uh, you could just look at demographic groups and say they're with us and you don't have to contest them just doesn't accord with the way our politics works. Yes, you have to energize your core supporters. You've got to get them to the polls, but you also have to reduce the margins of the other, the other guy's winning margins among his or her core supporters to put together a winning coalition. And most of these, uh, even in our highly polarized time, our elections, um, the last several elections were all decided in the, in the uh, in the political center among, uh, in, in the suburbs, among edu college educated suburbanites who had been, who had leaned uh, Republican and who were alienated and appalled by Trump and who came over uh, the divide uh, uh, as a result. And so, uh, but, but we're in the, we're always in the grip of these, uh, these inevitable theories about uh, demographic change that are going to solve our that are going to obviate the need to go out there and really meet voters where they live and persuade them uh, to, to, to come along. So we have that, that's a perennial de debate here, but here you still have the basic alignment. You still got Democrats and Republicans for constitutional reasons. We have, you know, the two party, the duopoly is entrenched uh, yeah. in, a, in an almost, you know, uh, fun, you know, in a way that's hard, hard to see it, 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 it toppling, but in places in Europe, like France and, other countries, it's not, and you see a center. You see a center left that's really lost its way entirely. Uh, and you know, uh, to your point about the class changes that Marty Lipset, who used to be, I'm proud to say, a senior scholar at PPI, with the late great Marty Lipset, did foresee these trends. But the question I keep asking my progressive and democratic friends is, how do you have a progressive movement 
that uh, is alienated from large swaths of the middle class. You know, who, who are you really fighting for uh, in this uh, in politics? Uh, you know, because our, our coalition, the Democratic Party, looks very educated, very metropolitan, very well, relatively well off. Uh, we got a lot of working class constituents too. Uh, don't get me wrong, but um, uh, you know, uh, but they te- they tend to be more minority voters with, with Democrats for other reasons. And so, uh, you know, this this kind of uh, the new class system, if you will, is something that I don't think is terribly sustainable if, for either party. They can't build durable majorities on on their current paths. Um, but, but I also say, just Willa, briefly on that, that it's also amplified by the fact that those groups hold completely different worldviews on the cultural issues that have become yes. much more salient in politics. And I think this would be more sustainable if we were still in the classic era of politics that, that was mainly and almost exclusively about the economy. But, you know, we know from a lot of research in political science and elsewhere, we know that the that economic dividing line is is now really being joined by the by the cultural axis, and 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 that is not just about you know enlightened cosmopolitans versus backward racists. It is it is much more complex. It is about yeah. people who who often do actually, and I've made this argument, and made, it's made me unpopular in Britain. But a lot of the people who did back Brexit, who wanted migration control and so on, were not racist voters. Those are in they, those are legitimate views to hold that they wanted the nation state to have more influence over public policy and they wanted to have a skill-based policy around migration, not, not the free movement. And, and unfortunately, the, the, the more radical Corbynista element within the Labour Party amplifies a message that further entrenches the alienation of those voters because they say, well, you know, these are the, this is the white underclass, this is the the, the, the racist, uh, they, they have a phrase in Britain, they call them gammons. These are the racist gammons, the, the men who get very red in the face and shout about immigration. And, and, and this is incredibly unhelpful because they yeah. haven't quite realised that it's the gammons that are going to put you back into power, right? If you don't take that group, a part of that group with you, you're never going to see power again. And, and I, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult conversation um, to be had and it, it's fundamentally different from from the 90s it's even fundamentally different from from the early 2000s and from the early new labor years because the the culture axis has just extended into national history national culture uh, statues education uh, schools you know now everything is being contested and argued about along the lines of you know is it, is it a pro-British view? Is it an anti-British view? And that is quickly becoming one of the big fault lines. Um, and it's, uh, it, 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 we've got to sort of, you know, I, I, in, in the US, I, I, you know, some of the arguments that have been put forward, people like um, Frank uh, Fukuyama, Mark Lilla, Michael Lind and others who have made this point about you know, we need to transcend the identity politics and get back to unifying narratives, uh, unifying narratives that, that are not pushing right. different groups in different directions. And unfortunately, there's little appetite to do that uh, in some circles of the Labour Party. Yeah, and in this sense, the demographic changes uh, in the United States 
do have this ramifying political impact. Uh, they may not be uh, it may not be an automatic guide to how people are going to vote and affiliate politically, but uh, certainly the fear of social dislocation, social displacement, you, you, you put your finger on it, it's the status, fall, the fall of economic and social and cultural status is driving the Republican Party now. It's, it's a party completely given over to cultural politics, and they're having a big internal uh, Donnybrook between the most extreme uh, manifestation of that is represented by Trump and his followers and, you know, more traditional conservatives who actually want to win back those suburbanites and and find a way to be a governing party again. Um, Well, look, I think uh, we are just about out of time here. Uh, Matt, it's been a fascinating conversation. and uh, I guess uh, to go back to the, the question on the table, you know, is a populist wave receding or advancing? Is honest answer is we don't really know. <laughs> we shouldn't uh, extrapolate from just a couple of data points, but it does seem to me that the uh, that Brexit being behind you and Trump being behind us create new and hopeful possibilities uh, for the for a uh, kind of a better politics than we've seen. Uh, uh, recently. So Matt, give us your closing thoughts about, uh, you know, uh, an optimistic view about how that might manifest itself in Britain, you know, uh, uh, over the next several election cycles. Well, I think the optimistic view is it, it does exactly what I think you've alluded to, which is it, 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 it provides the, the stimulus for, for an intellectual uh, revitalization uh, and it and it really does push the debate forward. There's no going back in British politics. There's no going back to the European Union. There's no going back to the 2000s and the 90s. We are in a we are in a new era, and there are lots of people that don't like it, and there are lots of people who who do. And I I think for the for the Labour Party, it's a really unique opportunity to stand back, say what do we uh, believe in what do we want to do? How do we want to change a country? And also, I mean, how do we want to make the most out of the independence and flexibility that actually the country now has being outside of the European Union? And there are things that that Britain can do now that it couldn't do previously. And it may actually be uh, up to up to voices on on the on on the centre left uh, as well, um, to, to try and vocalise what some of those opportunities are we will not be having a debate at the next election about returning to the European Union. We may be having a debate in the 2030s about returning to the European Union. Uh, it, you know, if we get to the end of the 2020s and there's just complete voter exasperation with you know, what would be a longer period of conservative dominance than the Thatcher period, um, that would open up all kinds of doors for transformational change, which anybody with a memory of 1997 knows can sometimes happen very quickly. Um, so I think, you know, it's easy to say, you know, where we are, where we are, but uh, I think the roller coaster has got a few more twists and turns in it before we get to the end. Boy, it's always uh, uh, like drinking out of a garden hose, uh, talking with you. I really enjoyed the opportunity to pick your prodigious brain on uh, British and, and uh, European politics. Uh, and uh, again, uh, Matt, uh, Matt Goodwin is one of the foremost uh, chroniclers of this phenomenon of national populism that we're 
wrestling with on both sides of the Atlantic. So always a pleasure. And uh, now that uh, we're getting it to, to the COVID end game and we'll have a chance to travel, I hope to see you in person over there soon. Thanks so much Matt, for being with us today. Thanks, Will, and thanks to all the listeners. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.